Hello and welcome to Consentment, brought to you by Saras Radio. I'm Zainab Siddiqui and I'm a presenter at the radio. And I'm Celine, and I'm co-producer of this Consent Vent episode and a Consent Workshop facilitator at SOAS. And we will be guiding you through today's episode where we're going to be discussing consent and sex education for people of color. Consent Vent is a 10-episode podcast series discussing all things consent. We will be exploring the topic in a wide range of guests from activists, journalists, educators, and organizers, discussing the nuances of consent to hearing about campaigns and organizations aiming to increase safety and provide justice for survivors. At this point, we'd like to issue a trigger warning. Trigger warnings are used to inform listeners that topics we're going to be discussing could potentially be triggering or upsetting, so you can decide whether you'd like to continue listening. This episode does touch upon issues of sexual assault and consent. This week, we are going to explore consent and sex education for POC. How does being a person of color intersect with consent and sexual health? How do sex education and health services fail to address the needs of POC? And how are grassroots organizations helping to change this? To do this, we're going to be sharing with you an interview conducted by myself and Jamila with Ella and Nana, the co-founders of Black Fly Zine. Black Fly Zine aims to fill in the gaps in sex education for POC, as well as, in their own words, offer a sex-positive and non-heteronormative perspective that's traditionally absent from communities of color. We hope you enjoy this interview. We're sitting here with Ella and Nana, and maybe you can both introduce yourselves. Um, maybe Ella, we start with you, and then Nana, we go on to you, um, and tell us about Black Fly, how you met, what you decided to make it okay so my name is ella i'm one of the co-founders of the black fly zine project yeah. and nana is yeah. all the way in toronto on skype hi i can introduce myself okay Thanks. sorry hi everyone so my name is nana i'm actually so as well oh so, uh, yeah i forgot that yeah Crap. and i'm on skype all the way in toronto so sorry for the delay Okay, so we started the project in 2016 uh, when I had moved to Mexico City and was having an awful time with my sexual health. Like, (laughs) yeah, that wasn't funny. No, (laughs) but the emphasis on awful that was funny. Yeah, it was. It was truly, and it was bringing up a lot of stuff that I was challenging for myself to do with sexuality, gender, my history, my background, my privileges, race, all in in connection to, to health and well-being or not well-being at that point. And I put out a call out on this black femme group called Bun Babylon to do, um, it was kind of like a... Um, a really sort of much smaller idea um, about doing a zine called, I think it was called like Virgo with herpes. And um, Nana responded. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, that's kind of like how it began. Right, Nana? Yeah. Um, so my background is I do therapy work. Well, I was doing therapy work with victims of rape, um, teenage victims, primarily black and brown young girls in very poor communities so I was working in Peckham at the time mm-hmm. and doing lots of work in like the Southwark area and then Ella, Ella put out this post and I was like oh my god not only does this resonate with the young women that I work with but it also resonates with my own sexual health experiences and similar to Ella I was having a really awful time just trying to navigate myself as a queer person as a queer African person as somebody who's had predominantly relationships with men and then 
was like that had very much felt myself to be queer and had sort of denied a part of myself and just a whole web of complexity so when Ella put that out I was just like yes this is exactly where I need to be investing my energy and I think for me as well just before putting up that post we were talking about I had had a really amazing conversation with (laughs) someone someone else who had just been giving me some very holistic advice about like diet and things like that and it was very much about like how conversations can instigate or just be very simple in making you feel less isolated and less alone and things like that and so that's why what I was thinking. So how did you sort of start producing the first copy of the zine and how did you come together well uh. <laughs> <laughs> we're really used to talking over each other this is hard how did we do it we had a, a lot of very intense conversations with each other because mm-hmm. we didn't know each other at all so we were like basic strangers on the internet so we had a lot of conversation which were very honest and very quite raw and quite vulnerable and quite I don't know I don't know what 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 it was but it was some kind of like friendship connection and then we we did a call out for submissions um and we did the graphics for that and then we started using our social media sort of like networks and then the feedback from that was everyone was just like incredibly supportive mm. and just like, yes, I want to talk about this. And yes, I want to talk about this. And then the kind of like how we were thinking about sexual health just expanded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to add to that, Nana? Yeah. So, yeah, the conversation. So there was a lot of bonding. I think that had to take place because... Mm of the subject matter it was like we were both feeling very sensitive about it and though we both wanted a space to disclose and share I think we had to establish quite a lot of trust um and it was actually really amazing to speak to technically a stranger although sometimes I feel like we can be so spiritually connected with people but we don't Mm -hmm. often see that in our initial physical interactions but it was very instant like Ella and I like she is like my twin flame in like the cheesiest way that sounds but also not (laughs) like I'm freaking I love her so much and we felt that instantly so we built on that um and yeah because the community was super supported we also started a just giving page or was it GoFundMe it was just giving and people were really generous it was Mm -hmm. just like and again it's just that thing of like mobilizing community and seeing when you produce or have a conversation that really like connects with people's experiences people are so willing and open and so we raised 500 pounds. We also threw a party. Um, and then from there, it was just like we suddenly had money. We, we also had to use our own money as well, but we were mm-hmm. both really willing to do that. Um, we had to learn like InDesign. I literally was on YouTube videos. It was all very new, mm. but because we were so passionate, it was great. Like Ella had a full time job, I still had my full time job. Actually, funnily, when we were like doing it and I had my layout on InDesign and I was like managing a children's home. Well, they were like teenagers and the girls in the home absolutely loved the zine and they would stand over my shoulder and like (laughs) ask me questions. And there's one where like a friend of ours had done like a series of images and we were were meant to select six. And I was sat there trying to choose and they were literally just like, that one's shit. I fucking love that one. (laughs) That one. What does that one mean? I don't get that one. Nah, nah, nah. Dash that one. And I'm just like, okay. <laughs> but it was also just like, again, like to be able to talk to 16 and 17 year olds about what we're doing. It was just like a realization of how needed the project was. Mm. And I just really affirming and encouraging. Yeah, all of the submissions. Whenever we got a submission, we were just so excited and hyped. Because mm. then it was just like, we got another one in like... 
Yeah, just the constant affirmation that there is just like people wanted the project and, you know, felt like they were part of something as well. Yeah. What did you like about the format of the zine as opposed to a podcast or a blog or something else? I think zines are very easy. So I think one of the reasons we decided not to use the title Virgos with Herpes uh-huh. is firstly I'm not one a of Virgo. the many reasons. Why we yeah. <laughs> I had, when when Ellen said that, I like frowned and was like, "That's it." <laughs> but I just want to be nice and be like, "Yeah, let's work on that." It was going to happen. But yeah, one of the things that I wanted was I wanted something that people could carry around with them and maybe read on public transport and it wouldn't like you wouldn't know because like what was I reading at the time I think I was reading a book on Marcus Garvey and it's called Negro in a Hat and it literally says in big red writing on the front Negro in a Hat and I remember like getting onto like the overground and people literally gasping and I'm like what Mm. the fuck is everyone like it's like let me read my book let me just get on with my life and so just being aware that like I think we wanted a zine because sometimes online I know you want something tangible you want something that when you're in bed you can look at that isn't like the glare of a screen so like having a zine having what we decided would be a black cover like a, a, a title that people might not be easy that people sorry wouldn't be able to easily work out what was the content of the book was one of the big things for us and also something that was small so like one of our friends she was at the Essence Festival in New York and she has the zine in her pocket and she's mm. just like I just love how like do you, do you remember that picture of Sasha mm. um, and she messaged me she's just like I just love how like portable the book is because it's just the zine is because it's A5 and while she was at that festival she could like she read it on her way there she shared it with her friends when she was there she had it in her pocket and read it on the subway back and I was like perfect like this is exactly what we want something that's just yeah can move with people and there's also kind of like a history about zines and about it being kind of like I don't know like underground or like knowledge and Mm. creating (laughs) platforms and networks and stuff which doesn't need to be I mean I think I think our zine is professional of a a professional standard but it doesn't need to be that it can have that kind of DIY DIY yeah so just just to fully understand y'all were making this while you were in Mexico City and you Nana were in Toronto or were you still in London at that point I was still in London. Okay. So how did, so did you base it in London? How did you make that work like across continents? That's, that's crazy to me. We were just, we were really committed um, again, because it's such a personal project. Like, and I think we haven't really spoken about our, our experiences, but it was just something that we both really wanted to do. So we made time mm-hmm. and I'm a really big believer that if you want to manifest something, if you want to do something, you will make time. And like, we were operating on different time zones. Like Mexico is what, seven hours between like London and Mexico city. So six, six. It, six. Yeah. So it was like organizing times to speak um doing stuff and then uploading it to our shared drive and then one of us editing it and just like sending stuff back and forth and then Ella came to London for Christmas in 2016 Mm. for 10 days and I basically was just like hitched up with her for most of that time it was it was it was pretty intense and quite crazy Mm -hmm. but it was also about being very honest about what you can do and very transparent and being like no I can't do this at this point yeah and the other person kind of picking up the slack would just but there was a real drive that can't that's like quite natural like you can't sort of like force that kind of thing you know mm-hmm. what I mean um to create it kind of fueled itself like in terms of energy and yeah yeah so also last question about production like how did how did you decide black fly i came up with black fly because i had quite the sort of generic 
connection between like sexual organs and plants. Mm. And then I was talking, I was thinking about um, insects in terms of disease. And then I was talking about thinking about white aphids, like the white flies. Mm -hmm. But we did want it to be black focused and for that to be known. Mm. So then I thought of black fly. And then it just stuck. It was literally just like, yep, and that's the name. (laughs) We didn't really brainstorm that much, did we? It just works really well. And also the font. People are always talking to me about like, oh, the font is so amazing. And just like our black backdrop. And it's Mm. it's weird how something like that can be created. And you're like, oh, yeah. I mean, it's fantastic. And everyone's like, we love it. And you're like, cool. Okay. <laughs> it just, it just I guess works. we're just brilliant. <laughs> um, okay, so I, I highlighted this one quote um, from your Instagram. Um, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. By that I mean shame and stigma. And I thought that was really interesting. One of the early, early, early. But I thought that maybe you both could talk a bit about this, like, shame and stigma and, like, both, both like, sex education and consent and obviously, like, the way that, like, revolves around, like, being POC. Okay, so I was... So when I got your questions and I was thinking about like my sex education and mm-hmm. it is something where like I don't, so my parents didn't really give me sex education. I think I've like told this story before where like one time I stayed out, like I was like your average teenager, but my parents are like very African. So you've got these very African parents with this like Western child growing up in like an inner city council estate. And I just like, I found drugs. So I'd like go out and rave and take MDMA and dance all night and have the best time. Mm. My parents were convinced that I was out like sleeping with like anything that moved. And it was so distressing to be like, I can't tell them I'm taking drugs. They literally think I'm a whore. I remember once I walked into my house and my dad opened the door and I was wearing sunglasses. So it's like 7 a.m. I've like left fabric. I'm wearing sunglasses and I'm like trying to hide my pupils. I know it was so awful and I'm just trying to get to my bed. And my dad grabs my arm and he's just like, listen, if you fall pregnant, I'm going to kick you and your mum out. And I'm like, dude, (laughs) this is. And I just remember thinking like for my parents, like the idea of. Um, being wholesome and chaste was such a big thing for them Mm -hmm. that I had a very skewed relationship with sex like sex very much scared me but it was something that I felt in my body like as a young person growing up and lots of like sexual urges and then I went to a catholic school which was very catholic and my sex education was also just like boy girl have sex baby if you don't want to have a baby, don't have sex. And I was just mm-hmm. like, cool. So for me, a lot of my learning had been through quite like, I guess I'd say like risk-taking behavior, maybe just like experimenting, not often thinking about safety boundaries, not really thinking about like who I was engaging with, but maybe just like uh, a drive to just sort of explore that part of myself. Um, so Yeah, I think just in terms of sex education, it's been very difficult for me. And actually, a lot of the stuff I've learned has come much later in my life. So I'm 32. So I feel that like, and I know this with a lot of my other friends, particularly of African descent, like a lot of us haven't come to feel comfortable with our sexuality very much into our like 20s, like mid 20s and later. Um, So yeah, I don't even know where I'm going with that, but I just wanted to talk about my lack of sex education and just how difficult it has been to really like find space to understand myself and also to find examples. You know, I think like when I was young and thinking I was queer, a lot of the lesbians and queer people I saw around me were just like white. And I was like, mm, no. So there was also this understanding of like, I couldn't be queer because I wasn't white. And mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And, you know, you internalize all of that stuff. And then it just by the time I'd met Ella, it was almost just like I was overflowing with stuff that I hadn't addressed. And mm. I've been in therapy for a while. My, my therapist talks about like putting stuff in a laundry basket and trying to put the lid on. But it's just like there's too much dirty laundry, yo. Like you need to wash some mm. of this shit and get it out. And that was very much how I felt about sex and myself as a sexual being was there's stuff I need to address and get out. So, yeah. Ella. I think there is a lot of stuff to do with stigma and shame around sex and people I don't know yeah I think that's there's generally amount of like normal sticker and shame for just just general kind of like a lot of like the white population as well but when it comes to people of color it just becomes more layered there's more layered and there's more nuances and there's just there is like just so much depth of kind of like experience and there is not enough about pleasure about mm. sex being pleasurable and because there is ignorance about disease and and infections and HIV and all of this kind of stuff you you fear something and you don't feel like you have agency over it and that can just cause a lot of damage before you can properly understand it so I just feel like yeah like you were saying like a lot of people in our generation are sort of like we're undoing we're working through, we're like processing things that could have been prevented or could have been, I don't know, nourished or mm-hmm. like we could have had a different attitude towards things um, yeah, sure. if education had been better and if there had been more role models and if there had been more of the kinds of things that I'm seeing in my, in the sexual health charity that I'm working, like working with at the moment, like workshops and, and all of, and places to go and things like that. Because like information is mm-hmm. incredibly valuable especially when it comes to sex education. And if you put sexual health in the, in the same sort of experience of health, like it's any other part of your body, and take away all of that stigma and shame, which is unnecessarily put on top of it, then it just becomes so much more manageable. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about consent in sex education, how you define consent, how you feel like creating spaces like Black Fly enables consent or like... I Yeah, I it's, it's like consciously thinking about consent because I went to a girls' school mm-hmm. that was like 90% Muslim around that in East London. So I wasn't really thinking about sex that much until, you know, there were kind of like boys readily available but I already knew that that I wanted to like kind of like I already had a had a feeling that I wanted to lose my virginity to someone who like loved me even if I didn't love them Mm -hmm. like I knew that that was some kind of important like I didn't actually I didn't I didn't have that idea that I wanted to get rid of my virginity really quickly so consent for me was probably when I was in like my first like long-term relationship and navigating consent when you're young and you're in your first relationship and you're you're experiencing that kind of like ownership of your body because you're in this relationship for this really long time with this man and all of those like really heteronormative sort of like conversations that you, you're not having because your your role models mm. are all of these films and movies and things like that. So it's just like I think consent is really important and it is something that I'm still I'm still thinking about. As someone who was raised in an environment where I didn't own my body, consent wasn't something that I could really 
I've really, I really struggled with consent because growing up, like I was my parents' child and I was my family name and I was also a girl child. So ultimately I was going to become someone's wife. Mm -hmm. So everything that I did was about me reflecting my ability to become a wife, even though I was very young, and also me reflecting my my father's name. So when it came, and then also I'm like a dark skinned woman. So even in terms of being perceived as attractive, those that was something that I really struggled with. So by the time I guess I was like having sex or very like cognizant of sex, I almost, I just didn't know what to do. And when I, I'd also internalized a feeling of not being desirable because I was dark skinned, mm. because there weren't many role models, because I'd heard it quite a few times that I wasn't attractive because I was dark skinned. That when somebody showed an interest in me in a sexual way, I I very much it's so uncomfortable to talk about now, but I just sort of to think about I realized that a lot of I moved out of gratitude for being seen. Mm. And so when you move from that point, you don't think about consent. And it's actually something that I really felt with the young women that I worked with where when I was speaking to them about consent, when I was speaking to them about their own sexual pleasure, they had no idea. It was almost just like, well, no, I, I don't demand my pleasure when I'm having sex. And my boyfriend wanted to have sex with me and I didn't want to have sex. So I had sex with him. And then me being like, so there wasn't consent and that's actually rape. And then, and it being like, no, that's not rape because rape is a stranger snatching off the street. And it's mm -hmm. like, no, it's actually not. And then realizing my goodness, like these young women are mirroring my own experiences where there are so many blurred lines, particularly in my like early sexual history where I'm like, there wasn't consent. But because I, not even because there wasn't consent, um, however, also where I didn't speak up, it also blurred the lines of like how I participated in that or didn't participate. And then there's been lots of self-blame because it's just like, okay, so there were instances where that was assault, but then I didn't speak up. And so can I call it assault? So this person was close in age to me, not that much older. We didn't know what we were doing. You know, it's just, it's actually pretty fucked. Like, I'm sorry <laughs> to swear. But like, I think if you are young and especially if you're black and you're growing up and you're having sex and, you know, your families don't want to talk to you about sex, you're not seeing many good like examples or role models of sex in healthy ways. Like you are literally walking through the dark trying to do this shit and it can be really harmful do you know what I mean like I I feel I've got through I feel I have sexual healthy sexual relationships I, I feel like I know exactly what consent is but like I'm saying I didn't come to me until my like mid-20s and later yeah consent is definitely it's a hard one um also so one of the things that I used to do for the charity that I used to work for is that we would go into schools and we would like teach consent and one of the stipulations like PSHE, which they teach in like English schools, like schools can determine the level of what well, the amount of PSHE that they teach around like sexual sex education. So some schools keep it really basic. You know, some schools are just like girl, boy, sex, baby, that's it. Like some of them don't include consent. Some of them don't include like desire. So there are so even what is being taught in schools differs from school to school and actually differs on what like parents want. Um, because for some parents, they don't want their children to be taught about sex, which is just such an insane thing because sex is everywhere. And yet you don't want it to be in a space where a teacher can be focused and be very specific. Like some, like there were some boroughs, like some schools rather in Southwark that I know are just like, no, we don't want 
PSHE or sex education being mm. taught beyond the basic. And that for me is just like so horrifying because then again, you have these children growing up with all this desire and no space well, and, and looking for spaces to like experience that but not with the knowledge to do so safely. It's also um, really important for men, or, mm. yeah, to know, because you'd need to instill in them very early on that they do not want to be having sex with someone who doesn't want to be having sex with them for their own well-being. Because I don't believe that you can you can engage with someone like that and it not have an effect on you. You might not realise it straight away, but it will at some point and it will just sort of change you. Yeah. And I think I, that really needs to, to, you know, in terms of engaging men in that conversation as well. So I used to teach a workshop as well for like boys who had been um, identified as displaying sexually harmful behaviour. My workshops were always full of young black boys, which was just like, oh, fuck's sake. Mm. Um, but when you were, when I was in those spaces, so it would be me and another co-facilitator who was always male. And it was fascinating. Like, honestly, I wish I could have recorded those sessions. But like speaking to 15-year-old boys and just what they thought sex was. And I remember getting into an argument with a 15-year-old. I actually had to leave the classroom because I was just like... I was having like heart palpitations at this point because he was just saying, you know, like whatever that common language of a girl can be a slut and a guy can't. And I used to hear Mm. it all the time. And like, he was really adamant. He was just like, no, only girls can be sluts because I'm giving it to her. And I was just like, what do you mean you're giving it to her? And he's just like, I'm giving her the D. I'm like, okay, cool. But you are also an active participant and you're enjoying that. So you're receiving something. So are you not engaged in the same process as her? And he was just like, nah, 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 nah. She takes it. I give it. So the girl's always going to be the slut because I'm, and I was just like, Oh my God. Mm. And he was so, he was so like hard about this. He was really going for it. And I was just like very, very smart boy in his ability to articulate, but the conditioning was strong. Like Mm. I was just, and he was the one who was the most vocal, but everyone in that class was backing him. And even my co-facilitator, he kind of was like at the back of his head in his hands. And I walked out and he came out and he was just like, do you know what, Nana? Like, I get where you're coming from, but this is how them young boys think these days. And I'm Courtney, like, what do you mean? He's just like, fam, this is the realness. And I'm like having this moment of shock and disbelief, like, Young boys genuinely are going around believing like sex is is something that empowers them and that they give women and that women are just for a lot of them an orifice to do so through. So that is, yeah, the education that we have to give young boys around sex is like so critical. And I actually realized doing that work that as much as I wanted to educate those boys, the greatest power in that workshop came through my co-facilitator, Courtney, because boys listen to men. It's really hard to get a young boy to listen to a woman when she's talking about sex. It's just, they tune out. They really are just like, because of how patriarchy works, because of where they associate power, me coming in and telling, me coming in and telling a young boy about um, sex and respect and concern and um, things being equal and, you know, they, it was really hard for them. It was like they'd listen to me and they'd nod their head, but I found that whenever Courtney spoke, it was just like, yeah, 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 like I hear that. And I'm like, I said the same thing, yo. So do you think that those workshops for boys that were displaying harmful sexual behavior, did they work in terms of combating rape culture and rape myths and that sort of thing? 
Um, they were definitely impactful. So it was like a 10 week program. And one of the things that we would also look at is just like porn is not sex. And I remember one boy coming up to me at the end and he was like, miss, do you know what you did? And I was just like, no. And he's like, you ruined porn for me. And I was like, what? He's like, you ruined it, man. You ruined it. And I was like, what are you talking? He's just like, I can't watch it the same way anymore. And I was like, oh, that's a shame. And like, he was swinging inside, but also just like, boom, yes, that's one boy who's not going to go and have sex and pull a move on the girl he's having sex with because that he's seen in porn that's actually kind of dangerous or he hasn't asked consent for, you know? So in terms of the workshops being useful, yeah, I definitely think they were. I think in terms of like the structure, a lot of work needs to be done, um, but the conversations need to be happening younger. I mean, I had, I took issue of course with who was selected for the group because after 10 weeks of doing the group, you realize that, oh, for some of the young boys in the group, it's literally they're 15 they're six foot tall they're very much in the throes of puberty they're like almost coming into them their physical bodies as men and the teachers are a bit confused by it and are sort of like oh this 15 year old looks like a man and I think he's like engaging in like sexual behavior and I think because of his aesthetic or his physiology rather he's probably being quite harmful so a lot of it was very racialized a lot of it was just like this is this is an issue. However, I'm all, I was always grateful to have those boys in those classes because between me and my co-facilitator, Courtney, whatever we taught them, we knew it was, it was helpful because we were coming at them from a, we share similar socioeconomic backgrounds as you. We sort of, we understand your experiences. We want to talk to you. You know, I'm, I'm the girl, the girl who's grown up with boys like that. Courtney is a boy who's grown up like that. So Yeah, just to have people in a space where they can speak to people who look like them about issues that I know that they're not going to be able to have a conversation with, with their family or with their elders in healthy ways. I think it was bomb. I think it was like, yeah, I really appreciated that workshop. I took issue with the white charity that was putting the workshop out, but the white charity used black bodies to do that work. So that, you know, and I think sometimes it is really frustrating because there are problems with systemic racism. However, when the people doing the frontline work are black and brown, sometimes I'm just super grateful. I'm super grateful that there's funding available and that white people know how to get funding and you're going to give me funding to go and do these workshops. I'm going to do it because it's going to empower my community and I'll deal with how you got that funding and you being in charge of that funding at a, in another space. You know, like we can't relate the two sometimes. What do you think needs to change socially and institutionally to ensure that sexual health and well-being needs of POC are being provided for? I think like what Nana has been talking about, black and brown people need to have funding and money and support and all of those real elements which means that you can create something and do something for the communities that you're a part of um because everyone like those workshops that nana did were effective because of the people that were putting them on but it's it is unfair that money is distributed the way that it is and it has made me like infuriatingly angry sometimes when nana has been talking about her work about yeah the labor that black and brown people do as frontline um, staff and the the inevitability that they will get burnt out because it's emotionally draining and it's physically draining and 
doing that work means that you have to go back into your histories and your past and the support and all of that needs to be, and it can only be provided if everyone on the upper tiers are also coming from the same kind of like situation in place. So that's why I love Blackfly because it is a platform where people are kind of like owning their experiences and their knowledge. And mm-hmm. we're not trying to educate. We're not, we're not people who have knowledge. We're literally um, creating a space where we're just like, okay, we're facilitating that. And it's not for anyone else but ourselves. And I think that's why it's really important and, and fulfilling because as someone who, maybe not so much now like I used to really consider myself to be an activist and I like especially being a SOASIO like (laughs) (laughs) as I'm sure everyone knows like SOAS can just really like you do some wild shit but anyway yeah so SOAS really like sowed some real combative seeds in me like I was all over the place but I almost like but it took such a toll on me to be like out there fighting systemic racism and getting into like academic political debates and then going and doing community work that I almost had to choose I almost had to be like do I do that like I guess that policy you know that really academic way of conversing with people where you can have that change or do I go and work at a grassroots level with the people who are the most vulnerable and really need our interventions so for me what I also really love about Black Fly is that it's about the community and it's that Audre Lorde's like quote right like you can't use the master's tools to rebuild the master's house or to something to that effect I kind of I probably paraphrase that wrong but I think we have to go into our communities and we have to do the work with our communities and work out what our community needs. And sometimes standing on the front line and arguing with like charity directors and people with money about how you want them to spend their money because you, because they're doing stuff in your community. It just feels like a waste of time sometimes. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I had a job once where I didn't realize that a significant amount of our funding came from the police. And then mm we then there was a moment where like something had happened and I was challenging it and I was just like no this is a a police stipulation it was like fuck all of you like literally like what do you mean like you're working with gangs and you're doing all this stuff to like empower young people and then you're telling me oh yeah well the police want this to happen so you kind of have to do it and it's just like no (laughs) so yeah I think just focusing on our communities raising our own funds doing things that are community specific speaking to people and being able to discern what people need I think that is the most like transformative the most like revolutionary because honestly these institutions, they're just age old and they're not really trying to change and people aren't really trying to relinquish their power and you can just expend so much energy trying to fight people. And it's just like, what is the point? There's, what is the point? <laughs> can you hear how tired I am? Yeah. <laughs> but there are really amazing organisations. Like, obviously, no. I have just come from a great team, me- team meeting, but NAS is just working with the Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic Community in sexual health Every, like almost all of the staff are from African, Caribbean, Asian communities. It's, it's amazing. So there are examples of people really willing to make a change. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's not, let's, you know what I mean? Like there are some amazing examples, but I think it's really important to talk about the number of amazing examples versus the yeah. number of 
missions churning out the same crappy programs that aren't impactful but getting all the money but now i wanted to end on a good note (laughs) (laughs) well we've got a really good note to end on so you've won a media award at the oscars which is by nas project london yeah um yeah and it's an annual red carpet event for those making a positive difference to sexual health outcomes in black asian minority ethnic communities so what does that mean to you in that initiative and could you talk about that Okay, so it was amazing because if there wasn't an award like that, I don't think we would have gotten an award. Do you think, Nana? Probably not, because it's so specific, the Noscars. Yeah. So it felt really good in terms of just, like, recognition because I feel like a lot of people, like, people are doing all of this work behind the scenes and if something isn't set up like these kinds of events, then then the recognition is also important. It's an important part of the yeah. process. And it, you'd obviously still be doing it at the same time and all of that, but it does, it was really meaningful. Yeah, it was really, really nice. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, exactly that, like recognizing community champions, recognizing people who are doing some really incredible work. And, you know, social media is great, but it, it's also really harmful because it, it's really hard to sell or to display that kind of work on social media platforms because it does make people uncomfortable and it's not something that people want at the foreground. They want beautiful faces and great aesthetics and, you know, so Mm. I think celebrating people who are doing really great community work is so important. And the Oscars was really great for that. Um, Swati Mandela was there. So Nelson Mandela's granddaughter who does all this incredible philanthropy work and, she gave a really moving speech, which I, we were there with our friend Aisha and we both were just like, oh my God, we just feel so affirmed and seen. And it was gorgeous. Um, Ella and I had definitely drank a bit too much wine. <laughs> Ella, Ella was nervous and I turned up and hadn't realized, I knew it said red carpet, but I was like, oh, whatever. I, I turned up in a jumper it. I knew you thought that. <laughs> I turned up in the, the truth dress, yeah. <laughs> and I was leaving and my mom was like do you reckon you should wear trainers I was like yeah man let me put on some boots oh my gosh my boots freaking saved me they were like a small bit of class my like bright yellow dress <laughs> but I'm looking at the photos you look you look great come on you look suave as and people had like crystals and like yeah it was it was high it was fancy wow like the princess of Luxembourg was there yeah. I was <laughs> I was cracking up laughing. I was still like, but why is she here? <laughs> <laughs> also, the choir, the joyful There's a choir that is joy- called Joyful Noise, which is like an HIV positive led choir, which was incredible. That made me cry. Because uh, yeah. it's not necessarily that they're like perfect singers or pitch perfect singers, but it's mm. just singing as a way of expression and using that space to express pain. And so you have these people who have been diagnosed with as being HIV positive, like singing just like at the top of their voices of just such fullness and just honestly, it was, it was really beautiful. Um, so yeah, it was really great to be celebrated and to be a part of that. And also to just like have people come up to us, like, Lady Phil came up to us, um, so like the LG. Lady the Phil doesn't come up to me. 
I want to say. Find you, and she remembered my yellow dress. But anyway, Lady Phil came up to me, and she was just like, "I love your zine." And her somebody she works with called Chloe was just like, "Yeah, I really love." And I'm just like, "It's weird talking to people who have read your zine and have not even our zine who've read Black Fly and have been moved by it, telling you about how it moved them, mm. and really encouraging us to keep going." Yeah. I think that's it, encouraging you to keep going. Because we definitely, yeah, especially with all those self-motivated projects, you can definitely have a bit of a dip. Yeah. So that is the kind of, that's why those those things are good, yeah. And also people just think Black Fly is more than Ella and I. And we've just got two new team members. So an amazing doula called Zachi and a writer called Veronica. But prior to them joining our team, what, three weeks ago, it's literally been the two of us. Mm. And so having people come and be like, it's really great what you're doing. And you're just like, I do this alongside a full-time job and being poor and navigating the fuckery of the world. But thank you. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, it's amazing that you that you do it. And it's it's good that you finally got some like recognition for, for that. Congratulations. Thank you. Hey. So what are the future plans for Black Fly? And how can POC or contribute or send in submissions what's the email future plans world domination (laughs) solid solid world domination first (laughs) off the next zine so very very soon we'll we'll be sending out the next call out for the the submissions the theme is going to be around healing around sexual health and healing um so you can find information about that on our instagram which is at black Flyzine or on our Facebook at Blackflyzine or you have email a Twitter us. as well. Huh? You, a Twitter. Or... Our Twitter is not completely great, so Instagram is a, a better shout. Yeah, for sure. So, and then what else do we have? Prepster. Prepster. We've got a project coming up with Prepster around women and prep because women are vastly underrepresented in terms of getting the clinical trials of prep and all of that um what else do we have we'll probably be we're going to be doing more physical things in terms of like drop-ins and events around the zine we'll have a launch as well but that's all going to be coming up next year yeah also nigeria nigeria yeah tell us about nigeria nana um so they're developing the first mental health crisis line in lagos and Mm -hmm. I'm working with the team to teach people how to train to respondents of sexual violence. I'm not, I mean, sorry, teach respondents how to um, support people who call in having experienced sexual violence. So that's really exciting. Again, it's just sharing expertise, sharing everything that we learn from our community, what people really need in those moments. Um, So yeah, so that's coming up next year as well. So there's, there's a lot happening um there's a lot happening yeah but it's all really good yeah i have to ask i have to ask the question first yeah aside from people contributing their work but where can people make financial contributions our favorite kind <laughs> no they're not they're not they're not we like poems no <laughs> um we yeah into our paypal which is blackflyzine at gmail.com Write that down, everybody. Like a proper like GoFundMe. We probably do, don't we? We will. We will be doing a GoFundMe, which will be to finance the next scene. But that will be next year, early next year at this point. Yeah. But we'll be looking for any kinds of contributions: um, poetry, essays, photography, letters, all of it. 
Yeah, any, like, especially since the theme is on healing, anything that people have done that has facilitated their healing, um, that's just been transformative for them. Any Anything, whether that's diet-related, whether that's psycho-spiritual, like, whatever that looks like, please share with us. Because, yeah, one of the, I don't think we've actually said this, but for Ella and I, like, Black Fly is so much bigger than us. It's not, we're not possessive over it it's a community resource so whatever people want to contribute and share like please do um yeah amazing thank you both so much for coming to talk to us if you're interested in making a submission to the black fizine and support their initiative to bring diverse experiences to the forefront of sex education and sexual health make sure to check the notes for more the show notes for more information And that brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We want this podcast to present topics of interest to everyone, so please let us know what you think. How have you enjoyed the show so far, and what do you want to know more about? Fill in the Google form in the show notes to let us know. Remember to stay up to date through SOAS Radio website, soasradio.org. And also remember to follow us on Twitter, at SOAS Radio. Thank you for listening.